Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from balmy Bushwick, Brooklyn. When I wrote that, it was not nearly as hard to say inside my head. (laughs) Balmy Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode 35. I am very excited to have author Mary Roach, who in her book, Gulp Adventures on the Elementary Canal, has wondered why we like crunchy foods more than soft ones, if one could eat themselves to death, if Elvis actually died of chronic constipation and many other things you may have never realized you are curious about until someone like Mary brings along the science in her trademark sense of humor. So uh, joining me by phone. Hello, Mary. Hello, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me on Sharp and Hot. I'm really honored to have you as my guest. Um, I spend a lot of time on this program doing what you say in the introduction, giving a lot of credit to food before it's consumed as a gustatory pleasure, as something that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about what it looks like and what the texture is. And your book takes it from there and forward. And I'm wondering if you could give us an overview of the sort of what what's Gulp all about? Well, just like you said, it's really uh the, the remaining chapters. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of books that have been written about the sensual pleasures of eating, of food, of growing food, making food, cooking food, chewing—not chewing so much as savoring—and <laughs> and then it, the, you know we form this sort of gross mass in our mouths and and prepare to swallow it, and that's sort of the end of the story. So, Gulp is kind of chapter two in a way. It's the the part that isn't quite as romantic or sensual, but equally interesting, I think. So it's chewing and swallowing and what's going on in the stomach. And I take a lot of sort of weird tangents. It's definitely not a Dr. Jensen's Guide to Better Bowel Care. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not a digestive health book. It's really uh, kind of a quirky, fun travel book down the tube, you know, nose to tail, the whole, the whole nine yards. And it is actually about nine yards. <laughs> and, uh, though that's not where the phrase comes from. So anyway, that, that's what it is. It's just me going, wow, this tube. We have this tube. Like we all have this weird kind of um, donut hole in us that where we dump this food and strange things happen and kind of important things too. It's uh, it's such a great story in that I'm sitting on the train rereading it as I was coming here today, and and yours are some of the few books that I can reread that I have the attention span for because they're so <laughs> engrossing in your. You call them tangents, but they're like these storytelling elements, these little asides. And I have to ask you, you have these people's names that like they work in at Ball University, the woman doing testicular research and why no one eats testicles. Are those real? Yes, they're real, and I don't look for them. I couldn't believe this woman, the, was her Petrocelli or something, she's, 
she's doing research on building a market for uh, cuisine involving pig testicles, I think it was. And, and then, you know, I said, oh, okay, and, like, what's your title and where are you? She's like, I work at Ball State University. I'm like, no, <laughs> really, in my head. <laughs> Does she this, get it? Did, was she in on the joke? You know, I didn't, in that, in that instance, I didn't, uh, I kept it in my head. I didn't actually say it. But I do sometimes, like I have, uh, I went in for my first colonoscopy recently, well, when I was working on Gulp, and I, well, I thought for the book, I was like, you know, I want to, like, tour my colon. I'm going to stay awake, and I called UCSF, the medical school here in San Francisco, and I asked the, the uh, public affairs woman, is there, is there a colonoscopist? or a gastroenterologist that you would recommend and someone who could kind of be a tour guide to my colon. And she goes, oh, I, I'm going to put you in touch with Dr. Turdeman. <laughs> and I'm going like, whoa, 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 rewind. Did I just hear you say Turdeman? And she goes, yeah, why? Like, not, I, no glee at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I get there, and, and um, Dr. Turdeman is explaining the procedure to me, and he said, do you have any questions and I go, just one, um, how many times a day do you get asked about your name? And he's like totally deadpan. What do you mean? Really? But in fact, he was kidding. He was kidding. <laughs> okay. I think he gets it all the time. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I did not look for these. There was a guy who wrote a paper on intestinal gas whose name was Farty, F-A-R-D-Y. Seriously. I do not make this up. I, I you know, it's there's so, and I love that storytelling aspect that it's like, yeah, and these are the, because your book is about the science of digesting, but it's really about the people that you come into yeah. contact with, the Italian supermodel who's also studying <laughs> saliva, and the way you describe her, like I've I've encountered people like this who are like describe her for. So you say she's statuesque and her pigeon oh, gray sweater. This, yeah, she's she's this. Um, beautiful, well-dressed Italian. Well, Italian women tend to be well-dressed. She's wearing, you know, she's got this beautiful, long, glossy black hair and perfect skin, and she's wearing this beautiful cashmere dove gray sweater. And so even her little blue latex gloves, when she pulls them on, they're purple, and they're, they kind of match the whole outfit. She's got these great boots that I really wanted. And I'm like, you're a spit researcher. How does this work? <laughs> she, uh, I mean, I, I didn't actually ask her that particular question. I just marveled at how sometimes the science, your impression, your image in your head, you know, you're heading to the laboratory of the person, of a person who has dedicated their career to saliva. You're not picturing this beautiful Italian woman. You're, I don't know, you're picturing kind of some moist, hunchbacked person. Right. Someone who doesn't like daylight is who I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So when, you... who, when, they, when they talk, they have those little weird sounds in their mouth. Right. Oh, yeah. Those drive me crazy, especially on the radio. I'm like hyper conscious yeah. of whether or not I have those. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You do. You hear them on radio. One time, when I was doing an interview, somebody stopped me. It was NPR, and I got out of the studio. I was late. I was running behind. So it was a, little, it was a hot day. She goes, stop right there. Go get a glass of water. And so now I'm thinking right now, am I making those? I know. Am I making those? I don't think I'm making them right now, You're but not. now I'm highly conscious of whether or not I start. <laughs> I'm going to take a sip of water right now. Okay, wait. I'm going to do the same thing. Here, wait. I have mine. Okay. I'm going to do the same thing. Okay, good. We're hydrating. This is important. So <laughs> what, another one of the... Well, tell me what she had you do, this Italian supermodel, when you got to her, um, when you got to her laboratory, because it is fascinating about the science of spit. 
Yeah, she, well, first of all, she kind of explained there's two different kinds, and they are really different. One of them is stimulated saliva, and that's when, when you chew food, or really anything, you can chew on a cotton plug, you can chew on a rock, whatever you decide to chew on, your body will be, your, your body's going, okay, you need to swallow this, and I'm going to help you. It doesn't seem like what I would have for lunch, but I'm, by God, I'm going to help you. So it, it generates this saliva, rather large amounts of it, actually, when you get right down to it. So we, and that is, that, that saliva is, like water. It, you, we collected some, she and I. We chewed on, it's called the, I think it was the salivart, salivet, salivary collection system, which is basically like a tampon, and you chew on it, and it absorbs the stimulated saliva, which you can then, you, know, you put this, the, the collection device into a centrifuge, spin out the saliva, and you have, a, you put in a little tiny adorable beaker, <laughs> and you have, you know, a couple tablespoons of this very water-like, beautiful-looking, clean, uh, it is like 90-something percent uh, water. But the other kind of saliva, that's the kind of the evil mucoid, um, that's the gross kind that, you know, you see in alien movies with like, hanging from the mouth. It's, it's, it's very important because it, it, it performs a lot of functions. That's the background saliva. It's always there keeping your tissues moist and dealing with bacteria in its way and so you have you have a combination of these two substances that are very different, but they kind of combine to form spit. So and, and spit has a lot. It's not just moistening things. It is also protecting your teeth because if you um, you eat or drink acids like fruit juices, so, you know, orange citrus juice or wine or vinegar or cola. These are in the acid pH range, and they will dissolve your tooth enamel really effectively. So. Uh, and she had, she did this thing, uh, the beautiful Italian spit researcher. She dropped vinegar on my tongue into my mouth and said, do you feel it? Do you feel it happening? And you do. You feel this gush of warm liquid, and that is saliva coming in like the cavalry to dilute the acid, protect your teeth. And it's really kind of – so now when I drink wine, I'm like, here it comes. Here comes the saliva. <laughs> It's funny you mentioned drinking wine because we um, – one of the things that I do is I teach people how to – pair wine and food and give them a vocabulary for understanding what makes a good wine pairing and what makes a poor wine pairing. And one of the yeah. things that we teach them is when you taste a high acid wine, it in, in immediately makes your mouth water. And that's a pleasing yeah. effect that people like. And it's why we drink lemonade and why we enjoy, you know, like lemon ice and that sort of thing. And wine is exactly the same. I just have never like thought about the uh, like anatomy of it before. Right, and the fact that it's actually protecting your teeth. You know, if you drink a lot of lemon juice or, or uh, wine with a, a it's high wine. Acid. It's really yeah, wine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lemon <laughs> wine. Yeah, but it's it's great to know that your body is kind of protecting your teeth, which so you don't have to worry about it. And that we've evolved, I guess. Like, are there other species that this doesn't happen for? But because we eat such a varied diet, we've evolved. Our saliva has evolved to take care of this without us having to be conscious of it. Oh, that's a great question. And, and I'm trying to picture the study where you would have um, animals come in and you'd give them a glass of wine and you'd measure the salivary output. I'll volunteer my cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you'd have to, maybe you'd have to put your finger in their mouth and, 
or right near the, the parotid gland if they have those like we do then and see if they're if see if it's happening you do the research you report it i will report back. i'll pin down my elderly cat and see what she thinks <laughs> but you do you talk about um our animal friends and their preferences for eating and you, there's something that you say in your book that has forever changed my practice of buying cat food which is that the cats do not care what the uh, descriptors are on the label that it's basically all the same cat food. Yeah, the um, interesting thing was that yeah, I went to a place that that um, devises and concocts uh, flavor coatings for dry cat food. They're called palatants, and cats uh, and cats are happier with the same thing over and over. They do not crave variety. I mean, they'll deal with it, but they are not looking for. We tend to project our own preferences like we'd get bored having chicken every day so we want to have you know switch it you know flop it up have tuna sometimes so we have this idea that we don't want to bore our our poor pets so um, we buy all these different you know the five different products that the pet food presents to us but in fact um, not only do they not does the animal not care but there's very little difference in how it actually tastes it just, it's a, I mean, it's subtle, a subtle difference, and particularly with kibble, where kibble is, you know, the, uh, the cat, there's a, th- a thing called pyrophosphates, which is something that cats can taste and we can't, and they go, they're crazy for it. So that tends to be what's on kibble. It's just something, it's a, a taste preference that cats have that we don't. I mean, I tasted pyrophosphates. It's like, yeah, it's almost like water is a little strangeness to it. I'm not, not something I'm going to go out and order in a restaurant, but cats... <laughs> Love it. Hold the so phytophosphates. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's what that's the main concern with, with the, the, when you're making cat kibble. You can put any label on it, but it's like that. Those ingredients will be in the mix, but they're really not playing a large role in the flavor. So that, yeah, I had no idea. And I have this like psychological battle with myself every time I go to buy a bag of cat food because I have to remind myself. She doesn't care. It's you. <laughs> it's millions of dollars of marketing that are marketing to me, the human, to make, you know, because I think she wants, you know, the ocean whitefish blend, which in reality, she's never seen anything close to the ocean before. And it goes sometimes to really, really bizarre extremes, uh, wherein you can purchase vegetarian cat food, and the cat is a true carnivore. The cat does not want any vegetables. The cat is a meat eater, and that's what the cat wants and needs. But but if you are a vegetarian and you're disgusted by meat, you kind of think, oh, that must be healthier for the pet. So the pet food company is like, this is a niche market. Right. Let's put something out here for them. And then the next thing you know, you're pushing your dog in a stroller through Manhattan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So going back to how we would sample the cat's uh, saliva, you said uh, sticking your finger into their mouth. You have this whole story of the scientist and the man who was shot, the beaver furrier, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And then they, the scientist dangled food tied to strings into the opening that had healed open mm-hmm. so that he could study digestion from the outside. And this was absolutely fascinating to me as someone who is... The mother of a toddler, I see a lot of food go in and come back out again in its undigested form. This idea that you could tie a string on and like watch it actually happen inside of a human body is absolutely fascinating to me. And also to uh, Dr. William Beaumont, way back when in the early 1800s, when this happened. He was, you know, 
a lot of people focus on the oh, his the, the guy with the hole in the stomach, Alexis Saint Martin, Saint Martin, right. as we would say, uh, Saint Martin, Alexis Saint Martin. I mean, he was the one. He had an accident. The gun went off. His gun. Someone else is not sure who's. But anyway, blew a hole in his side. The stomach hole healed open. Is that a and, normal thing to have happen, or was well, there? Well, you know, I looked. I looked up. Uh, there is something uh, like a like a gastro something rather fistula where it can heal open to the outside, and it's not. I mean, it's a, the stomach is a difficult. It's a difficult wound to heal sometimes. So I, I think you know there was some people would say like, oh, he intentionally left it open and encouraged it not to heal so that he could become famous as the pioneer pioneering digestion researcher. I think that's an exaggeration. I don't think he kept it. I don't think he tried to keep it open. He may not have worked as assiduously as he might have otherwise when he had the idea of, oh, hey, I can, this guy will be my ticket to fame and fortune and glory in the annals of uh, American medicine. But anyway, um, I went out, just went off on a, a total sidetrack there. But, but the hole was there, and Beaumont was like, wow, if I put my eye right up to this hole and with a light, I can see what's going on. I can see there are there is liquid being secreted. There are muscular contractions. I can see the food. And then he had this idea, if I put it in a mesh bag on a string, I can lower different, like, meat or vegetables or something that's raw versus cooked, and I can do these experiments, and I can put them, the bag in and then take it back out in two hours and three hours and, and then I can and then he started taking the gastric juices out of the stomach and doing seeing if it would happen in a test tube or whether you needed the human body to uh, make the process happen so so he was he too found it utterly fascinating uh, so much so that 30 years of his life was uh, de- dedicated to the study of human gastric juices and you allude to their relationship that is so has to be so intimate, and yet they like they don't even appear to have like a friendship, right? Yeah, I didn't. I so wished that Alexis St. Martin had kept a diary of his own uh, because I, I had William Beaumont's side of it, which was very. I am a scientist. I am a doctor. I am, you know, he 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 felt that he because he was paying St. Martin and. St. Martin didn't have to go off and do this very heavy labor of um, portaging with canoe and furs, and, and you know, that was very hard work. And I think he saw himself as, oh, hey, you know, I'm paying him, and it's not particularly difficult work to digest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think he saw himself as crossing any ethical boundaries. Uh, but I, and St. Martin annoyed him because St. Martin would take off, spend the money on drink, leave town, um, sort of not intentionally sabotage the research, but just say, you know what, I've had enough of you sticking a tube in my stomach and sucking out my juices. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of this, and I'm going to go on a bender and, or go see my family. And so Simar, uh, uh, Beaumont would have to kind of track him down, which was not easy back then before the Internet. It was like, here is a letter. Carry this by hand to this other man who works for the American Fur Company and See if you can find this man, this lad, St. Martin. <laughs> the lad with the I will offer him <laughs> more money. I will offer his wife money. I will, what can I do? You know, so, um, but yeah, they didn't, there wasn't, there wasn't much fondness. You know, St. Martin would say, you know, there would be notes that St. Martin had had someone else write. And it, it always ended with, and my regards to your family. And it was polite, but I think that the two, it was a kind of a game of 
Coyote and Roadrunner. Right. It was, uh, how can I get more money out of him? And then on the other side, Beaumont saying, once I get him next time, he won't escape. You know, so uh, it was a very strange relationship. It's totally fascinating. I We have to take a break, but when we come back, I want to ask you how you come to find these stories. I mean, as as a, a writer myself, I'm... I'm endlessly fascinated with your love of research and following these sort of threads back through history. We'll be right back after the break. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson. Joining me on the line is author Mary Roach, talking about her new book, Gulp, Adventures on the Elementary Canal. And before the break, we talked about these human relationships that you unpack in your storytelling. And one of the more fascinating stories you tell is about the prisoner who's convicted of murder that you get to interview about smuggling goods into prison. And I'm wondering how... How did you come to say, you know what, you know who I should interview is a prisoner? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, here's, here's what happened. Um, uh, I like to have a setting for the, each chapter. And for Gulp, it was very much a book that starts in the mouth and ends in the rectum. And I thought, okay, rectum. What, where am I going to go for that? There's no institute of rectal studies. There's no kind of, I don't want it to be about diseases of the rectum, because this is a book about normally functioning tubes and things. And it's not, a, um, it's not about illnesses. So um, I thought, okay, well, what is the rectum? The rectum is a storage facility. Essentially, it's a holding area, so we don't have to, as soon as it's full, run off. Uh, and, and empty it. I mean, we don't have to, when the, when the poop gets to the end of the line, we don't have to immediately dispose of it. So right. it's a, it's a, and I was like, okay, storage facility, who would have a, who would have an interesting 
take on that. And I thought, all right, uh, you know, prisoners, people, the, the alimentary canal is used kind of as a criminal accomplice, whether you're swallowing heroin little packets of, uh, in latex or whether you're pushing it up the other end, you're, you're, you're using the alimentary canal for this other reason. Uh, and a, a reason in the case of the rectum that's very similar to what it evolved to do. So I called, just called one day in my little office. I called the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and I got the public affairs guy, and I said, look, I'm doing this book, and I have a rectum chapter, and I fully expected him to hang up on me <laughs> because this is a weird thing. You know, it's like, what, what's wrong with you? Who are you? But uh, he listened, and he, he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, at Avenal State Prison, we've had a lot of trouble with cell phones being smuggled in and out that way. And because if you, you know, with a cell phone, it's a little big to, to swallow. <laughs> you can't swallow it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it tends to be brought in. That way, and the, the dawn of the, the smartphone has made this a whole lot harder. But anyway, at the time I reported the book, smartphones were just catching on, uh, and that's how it happened. He said, "Sure," um, and I expected when I went to Avenal State Prison that I would be talking with guards and people who are trying to prevent this from happening and doing the searches and what you know, what kind of how did they try to deal with this, which would have been much less interesting than speaking to the person who is actually. Um, using his rectum in this way, so uh, I so I sat down with this guy. I didn't know at the time he was a murderer. I didn't know what he was in for. He happened to be serving life for murder, uh, but he he had it was the murder. Ha- he did it was he was very young. He's in his forties now, late forties, I think. And uh, I don't, this sounds really weird, but he's just a delightful man. Right, you describe <laughs> him. He's like a charismatic storyteller. He has perfect teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's like he would be happy to sit next to him on a plane. He was just a really nice guy, uh, and it was very nice of him to sit down with a stranger and talk about his rectum. <laughs> Not everybody would do that. No, do you know if he's read the book? Did you send him a copy? No, I didn't because it's very hard to send a copy of a book into prison. I, I was going to. They have a library at Avenal, and they had one of my books. I think it was Stiff. And I wanted to give them uh, other copies, and the, the paperwork required was unbelievable. And I finally just said, "You know what? Just forget it." Yeah, never or, mind. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Oh. So I don't. I don't know if he ever. I don't. It, you know, it, to, to get something to send something to a prisoner is less straightforward than you might think. So I don't know if he read it. I don't know. Hmm. I hope well, you enjoyed it. When you you know you said that when you called the PR person at the prison that you thought that they were going to think that you're weird. I love the, your weirdness. I like I love your particular brand of of weird, and that you write these books about the science of death and the science of the afterlife. I think that your whole catalog is something that listeners of this show will know me as someone who loves to like unpack weird stuff. And I just to thank you so much for writing these books. <laughs> oh well. Thank you. You're very welcome, and uh, thank you for thank you for uh, having me on the show. It's really sure. been fun. So, can I ask you a couple of food before they it's digested questions? Sure. Just human yeah. interest questions about you. Do you enjoy yeah. food and cooking? I love food. Uh, I enjoy cooking. My husband's cooking. My husband is a wonderful cook. I am not. I've never been particularly. Let's face it, not at all gifted in that area. Uh, but I live in Oakland, California, which has lots of fabulous. Brooklyn by the Bay, as if the New York Times proclaimed it recently. But there's just lots of wonderful 
restaurants and farm to table, which is a phrase that's overused. Um, but just a lot of attention to really fresh ingredients and innovative ways to put them together. There's so much. Plus, they're just wonderful um, ethnic restaurants and foods in Oakland, California. So I'm always having, you know, drive, going down to the taco trucks in Fruitvale, which is a mostly uh, Latino or Hispanic neighborhood, and um, lots of great surf, Vietnamese places over on International Boulevard, and just so much great food. I love to eat. That's awesome. I'm I'm going to after this conversation. It just so happens that I'm about to have lunch, and so I'm my um, the mention in your book of the your salivary glands do not salivate at the mention of food. I I just cannot believe that to be true. Just listening to you talk, <laughs> I cannot either. And I said that in the book. Although I've seen two studies. I know these were these. One of them was a Berkeley nutrition. And I okay, I believe you, dude. But I can't believe it because I feel it happening in my mouth. Right, just his to hear you talk was, about it. Yeah, his argument was, oh, you're because you're about to eat, you're focused on your mouth, so you're noticing it. I'm like, no, I don't think so. But anyway, who knows? Did you come from a cooking family? Did your parents cook? <laughs> no, my father was British. Okay. Old school British, very fussy eater, um, meat and potatoes and mushy vegetables. My mom uh, got really excited about convenience foods, and we had a lot of fish sticks and TV dinners and ravioli in a can. Uh, so she had a couple signature dishes, but no, I was not raised. And so I, when I left home, I came to California the first summer. I'd never had a good avocado. I just it, avocados were ten for a dollar. I would just sit on the grass in the sun and eat an avocado with a spoon for lunch. I was in heaven. Avocado was my my kids' first food. Um, I eschewed the uh, request of pediatricians to give them rice cereal because I. Uh, I wanted him to prefer things that were savory. And some of the reading that I've read is that if you start them on cereal, mm-hmm. you set them up to prefer sweet food. And right. I can still sit that kid with half an avocado and a spoon and he'll just entertain himself and half of it will end up on his face, but it's good for your skin too. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mary, thank you so, so much for coming on Sharp and Hot. I could talk to you all day. You're absolutely charming and wonderful and you truly make me want to be a better writer. Um, I should have apologized at the top and warned everyone that I'm a huge fan of your work and that I have no journalistic integrity at all. Uh, <laughs> and um, are you in a position, are you, do you know what your next book is going to be yet? I do, but I'm, I'm keeping it, um, I was going to say under my hat, but maybe I should say in my prison wallet. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. I look forward to the release. I hope you'll come back and talk to me again on Sharp and Hot. Anytime. I would love to. Thank you so much. It's a great show. All right. You have a great day. Listeners, you can find more on Facebook.com forward slash Sharp and Hot. You can find me on Twitter at Chef Emily P. And we will be back next week. Until then, keep playing with fire and knives. Sharp and Hot with Chef Emily. Sharp and Hot with Chef Emily. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. 
Thanks for listening.